You may be seated. So on page 9 in your bulletin, you will see an assortment of texts from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And uh, notice a recurring phrase that I think ties these together, as we'll see today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will move in us as we hear this now mightily. In Jesus' good name, amen. My father gave us all this year a Christmas gift that was quite remarkable and I think more meaningful than he even realized. On the day that we all got together to celebrate Christmas uh, after brunch, you got to kind of picture this. We're all in my parents' living room and it's myself and Sarah and our four kids and my brother and his wife and my sister and her husband. And uh, between us, we have 16 grandchildren ranging from about age 20 down to a few months old. And so they're all sitting there and dad gets out his computer and he starts he puts on this Google slideshow and he starts to tell us the story of our ancestors. A whole bunch of stuff I actually had not known, and he traced it back five generations before himself to my great-great-great-great-grandfather, whose name, it turns out, I didn't know this, is James Wallace, from whom I get my middle name, and his wife Jane, and they lived in the early 1800s, somewhere near Newcastle, Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania, and he began to show us the story, such as we have it, it's kind of fragmentary, but the story of everything moving from James and Jane Wallace down to, you know, the 16 grandkids sitting there in the living room. And as I'm listening to kind of these fragments of stories we've been able to piece together and uh, after some research and, you know, often seeing maybe just a single black and white photo of this man or this woman or this couple or maybe even a little bit of a family shot. And I'm listening to dad telling this five or six generation story as I'm looking at these 16 grandkids seated there in the living room. 
And it was just kind of a crazy experience of looking and listening, looking at and listening to history while watching these little, little and not so little ones here and just, you know, this span of like six or seven generations. And I remember th- just thinking as I was seeing pictures of my ancestors, I didn't even know these people existed, looking at them and wondering, you know, if you had interrupted them somewhere in their lives, I wonder if they could have ever foreseen this moment in their offspring of these 16 grandchildren sitting listening to their story. And as I thought about that strange cloth of history, I, I thought of something else. What I was watching and hearing was not just nature at work. It was also a work of grace. Because in those seven or eight generations, there were quite a lot of Christians, not all of them particularly well taught, not all of them, you know, paragons of Christian virtue, but Jesus followers. And I was just reflecting on the fact of how easily at any juncture in this story, something could have been different. And so this man didn't meet this woman and none of us are here. And just reflecting on that and realizing this was God working that in the weaving of this particular man in history, this particular woman in history, eventually some of them got together in marriage and had offspring. In the coming together and then the spilling forth of these households, God was building his household. God was building his kingdom. And I was watching 16 grandchildren who know and love Jesus in that living room as a result of what God did in all of this story. And that brings me to the central idea that I'd like to explore in this brief Sanctity of Life series centered around next week, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And this is the basic idea I want to think about with you. The idea is that God, who designed genders, man and woman, and generations, generational fruitfulness, God who designed genders and generations, restores these in Christ to serve his kingdom. Having designed genders and generations, God restores them in Christ to serve his kingdom. And this is the thing, which means, what that means is that that brings manhood and womanhood and marriage and, and parenting into the realm of spiritual warfare. God designed, having designed genders and generations, restores them in Christ to serve his kingdom. And what that means is that manhood and womanhood and marriage and parenting are in the realm of the wars of God's kingdom. And I think if you think about your lives, you will probably feel that, actually. For example, as I've thought about Dad's story since that that day we celebrated, I've reflected that we are now, as you well know, probably about 100 years into an increasingly dominant uh, ideology that would hear my father's story that morning as an act of oppression. For him to tell the story of these marriages and bearing children through those marriages and family structure and and kind of the generational life of a family, this ideology would, would think of that as oppression. And I want to begin now for just a moment, and I want to kind of spend just a minute orienting ourselves in what I will call, as you'll see in a moment, an age of revolution. I just want to think and kind of orient ourselves as Christians, as we think about all of this, orient ourselves in an age of revolution. Here, here's why I call it an age of, re- of revolution. In 1930, so my father's father was 14 years old at the time, a German psychoanalyst in the Freudian vein, named Wilhelm Reich, 
R-E-I-C-H. In 1930, he wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. Now, this was about 30 years prior to the sexual revolution as we know it. We know the sexual revolution as what happened in the 60s and kind of the free love movement and all that. This is 30 years earlier in, in the German intelligentsia. And he wrote this book called The Sexual Revolution. And the basic thesis of Reich's book was this, quote, the existence of strict moral principles has invariably signified that the biological and specifically the sexual needs of man were not being satisfied. The existence of strict moral principles has always meant that the biological, especially the sexual needs of man, were not being satisfied. Every moral regulation is in itself sex-negating. And all compulsory morality is life-negating. Let me say that again. All compulsory morality is life-negating. The social revolution or the sexual revolution has no more important task than finally to enable human beings to realize their full potentialities and find gratification in life. Now listen to this whopper of a sentence. The compulsory morality of marital obligations and familial authority is a morality of cowards and impotent people who are afraid of life. Let me say that again. The compulsory morality of marital obligations, as in Sarah and I should be faithful to each other, and of familial authority, that I am a father and that means something, Sarah's a mother and that means something, that is the morality of cowards and impotent people who are afraid of life, says Reich. Very interesting. Now, you know, he's writing this actually in the rise of Nazi, Nazism in Germany, and so one of the reasons why he wrote this book was to figure out what makes people fascists. And you guess what makes people fascists? Compulsory morality because you repress all their drives, eventually it comes out in political fascism. Interesting theory, yes? Well, in 1945, in his third edition of this book, he wrote this. He said, notice again the language about life. He said, today's social struggles are being waged between those forces interested in the safeguarding and affirming of life and those whose interests lie in its destruction and negation. So the social struggle is between those who want to safeguard and affirm life and those who want to destroy and negate it. And then he comes up with another whopper sentence because I would be like, you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, let's, let's be anti-abortion, let's say, and affirm and safeguard life. Well, he actually turns it exactly on its head. He says, suppression of the love life of children and adolescents. Suppression of the love life, the sex life of children and adolescents is the central mechanism for producing enslaved subordinates and economic serfs. Like the whole reason why our society is such a mess and we don't have real life is because we're suppressing the love life of children and adolescents. And then later in the book, he says something that is very, very insightful about all of this. He says, the concept of the sexual urge as being in the service of procreation, the idea that sex is to bear children and that it ought to be fundamentally life-producing, and it's like intimately tied up with that thing of creating life. He says that whole idea that se the sexual urge is in the service of procreation is a method of repression on the part of conservative sexology. It pre presupposes a goal which must be of supernatural origin, and it thus betrays a religious or mystical prejudice. That's actually really insightful. The idea that sex is for babies 
is a repressive thing, he says, that could only have come about if people were paying attention to something supernatural. They had some kind of religious prejudice. Now, this is 1930. And you know very well, of course, that we're now 100 years on. And what Reich said of sexual urges, that is life. Anything that represses that is repressing and negating life. What he said about sexual urges is now, of course, said in our world today of self-asserting, self-gratifying urges more generally. If you guys are like 13 to 18, can you just look at me for a second? This is something you really need to be able to draw a bead on. Life for your generation means expressing and fulfilling your deepest desires and feelings. That's living. That's how people your age, that's how people my age, think about life. That's what life is. It is expressing and fulfilling your deepest feelings and desires. If you cannot do that, anything that stands in the way of that is life-negating, to use Reich's term. It is repressive and oppressive. Paradoxically, of course, all of this frenzy of pursuing, gratifying our feelings and desires is just fantastic for corporate profits. You know, sort of paradoxical, I mean, you know, Reich was a Marxist. <laughs> uh, I don't know what he would have thought about all this, but you know, when you have people and they're just seeking gratification all the time, boy, is that good for business. Sell them what they want. But what has been the response of the Christian church to a hundred years of this ideology? I think there have been two basic responses among Christians. I'm getting to Ephesians. Hold on. I think one response of the church to this age of revolution has just been assimilation. I'm really surprised at how many Christians still want to have the label Christian, but they totally buy my body, my choice. By the way, can I just tell you that is godless. You know the biblical view, God's body, God's choice. But there are people who want the Christian label and absolutely buy that. My body, my choice. Love is love, whatever that even means. Identity is reality. They just buy it 100%, even though they want to keep the label Christian. It's mystifying, but there's a lot of that going on. But the other response of the church has been behaviorism. Sexual rules and gender roles that we say this is how it has to be, but without a vision for what this is for, I mean, I think we can honestly, most of us say, our life ways, our daily practices, habits, kind of life structures in our day-to-day lives do not really reinforce in us or in our younger ones a real hunger for God's design. Like the way God designs stuff, man, that's the good life. What is reinforcing that kind of imaginative vision? And so often, even though we keep the rules, they feel life-negating. And it's not uncommon, for example, to have Christian youth who are politically social conservatives. You know, they might be anti-abortion, for example, but they're sexually active. Or even if they're not sexually active, they have really no vision. I'm astonished how many young men and women, in, like serious young men and women I talk to in the church, they don't have any vision whatsoever for being a husband, a father, a wife. And you can feel for girls in this. I mean, how, how, like how awesome is it to really want to be a wife or mother? Does that grab your imagination? Young people who, again, they'd be politically social conservatives, but they think contraception is completely normal. Not even a more, an ethical question about it. Many of them are committed, I mean, absolutely committed to a lifestyle that will require them to choose between career and family. 
They're already committed to the lifestyle, and it will require a choice between family and career. Many of them have zero plans to use part of their earnings to invest financially in family-supporting communities. And so we end up with Christians in behavioristic circles who obey the rules, but the way we imagine the good life is largely captivated by the social trends. And so what I want to do now is turn the corner, and I want to kind of target in a loving way our imaginations. We've just oriented ourselves a bit in this age of revolution, but now to Ephesians, and I want to just locate ourselves now, locate ourselves now in the plan of God. Let me summarize the book of Ephesians for you as Paul lays it out. I've just given you some snippets. Paul basically in Ephesians 1 says this. He says, you saints in Ephesus are so indescribably blessed because your blessedness is rooted not in the affairs of earth, not in the affairs of Ephesus. Your blessedness is rooted in the plans of heaven. That's why you are like beyond blessed. God in heaven, he says in that first chapter, he says God in heaven is so determined to bless you, his people, through the past, present, and future work of his son Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ. He's determined to bless you through the past, present, and future work of his son Jesus. And that means that God's love for you, Ephesians, it stretches from before there even was a world when God chose you in Christ, and it stretches on through history, through the redeeming work of the cross where his son paid for your sins, and it stretches on into this future of what he calls in chapter one God's master plan to put all things in heaven and earth back together through the rule of his son Jesus. And so Paul in chapter one says, listen, Ephesians, I'm, I'm calling on you to kind of pull your head out of Ephesus for a minute and just see and absorb this reality of God's plan in the heavenly places. That's the language he uses, the heavenly places. There in chapter 1, verse 3. But, I mean, Paul's a realistic pastor. He knows Ephesus is pretty absorbing, kind of like Long Island. I mean, there's a lot to think about, a lot to focus on. And it's hard to get your head kind of pulled out of that and really see you know, yourself as part of what God's doing in the heavenly places. And so, you know, even though this plan of God through Christ in the heavenly places, it's every bit as real, it's every bit as present as what's happening in Ephesus, you know, it's hard to see it. We don't see it with our physical eyes, and so it seems a million miles away. And so what Paul gets busy doing as he goes on in chapter 1 and 2 is he, he works as a pastor to kind of pull together these two realities, God's work in the heavenly places as it manifests on earth, and then the life of these people in Ephesus. And what does, he, what does he say as he goes on? Well, he, he, after he prays, in, uh, later in chapter 1, he prays that God, the language he uses I love, he says, I'm praying that God will kind of turn the lights on. He'll just turn the lights on in your hearts. So you will see your earthly lives, really see them in light of what's happening in the heavenly places. And after he prays that for them, he then kind of spells out what he's talking about. And he, he begins late in chapter 1 with this very well-known fact that after the resurrection, where did Jesus go? He says in chapter 1, verse 20, after God raised Jesus from the dead, he lifted him up and seated him, now notice the language again, at his right hand, where? In the heavenly places, far above rulers and authorities. So there's this whole, we don't know exactly what all this is about, but there's this whole group of spiritual rulers and authorities, and Christ is now seated and thrown above all of them at the right hand of the Father. And then look at the chapter 2 text I gave you, chapter 2, verse 6, and notice then Paul in chapter 2 makes this unbelievable claim. He says, notice the language there in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, God raised you up with Christ and seated you at his right hand. 
in the heavenly places. Now, here's what I don't ever hear a lot of talk about among Christians. We all would agree, yes, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Did you know that you are seated with Christ at the right hand of God the Father? And what does that mean? It means that as Jesus Christ is ruling in authority over the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, you are sharing that authority with him. You, in some way, are exercising the kingly rule of Jesus with him. Well, that's just like, how do you kind of even figure out what that means? Well, Paul goes on in chapter 2, and he says, well, let me tell you what that means. It means that God is now has gathered into his church, not just Jews who believe in Jesus, but Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And as God is gathering all these people who would other, otherwise be hostile to each other, he's gathering them into his family. He is reconciling all these people to himself through the cross. So we're now friends and children of God. And we're friends with one another because God has broken down the walls between us through the cross. And as God is gathering all that together in his family, Paul says in chapter 2 that God is building an earthly temple, a temple on earth made out of people. And in this temple, God dwells on earth among his people. And then notice what he says in the chapter 3 text that I put in, in the bulletin for you. Paul says then, in the life of this church, now Jew, Gentile, all these people will be fighting with each other otherwise, as they're now friends of God and friends of each other. God is building this temple, and in that temple, in that church, look what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10. God's manifold wisdom, he says, is being put on display before the rulers and the authorities where somebody in the heavenly places so what's this is part of what's going on with ruling and reigning with christ as god is gathering his church and building his church and you know putting people together like he has this afternoon and he's doing this work and you're friends of god and friends of each other god is putting on display in the heavenly places to these rulers and authorities see what i'm doing through jesus he's kind of showing off as it were through the church to these rulers and authorities, as he should. But the role of God's people is even more active in the heavenly places because even as God is just showing his infinite genius as he builds his church, showing that off to the rulers and authorities, Paul says at the end of the letter, the last text I gave you, that we as Christians actually actively wrestle with these rulers and authorities where? Chapter 6, verse 12, what's it say? We wrestle with spiritual authorities, where? In the heavenly places. Well, how do we do that? Well, by putting on, he says, putting on the armor of God. Well, what does that mean? And this is really what I want you to grab. Putting on the armor of God. Here we are late in the letter. So back in chapter 3, God said, God is, Paul said, God is displaying to the rulers and authorities his genius, his wisdom, and what he's doing in the church. And now at the end of the letter, this church is wrestling with these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places by putting on God's armor. Well, Paul has already told us in chapters 4 and 5 what putting on the armor means. It means very simply that we in the church, in the body of Christ, we are putting off all the old life ways of our dead self that we got from Father Adam, and we're putting on the new ways of this new living self we received in Jesus. We're putting off certain things, and we're putting on these new ways of living. What does that look like? Well, it means you don't lie to each other anymore. You speak truth. It means you stop stealing and you work so you have something to give to each other. It looks like generosity. It looks like instead of being hateful and malicious and bitter, it means you are kind and tender-hearted, forgiving. It means instead of, you know, acting like the Gentiles, you walk in sexual purity. 
It means that you are singing together, ministering to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It looks like always giving thanks to the Father through Jesus Christ, and it looks like your household life. It looks like putting on the new self looks like wives submitting to your husbands. It looks like husbands loving your wives the way Jesus loves the church. It looks like children obeying your parents. It looks like fathers bringing your children up in the Lord and not frustrating them. All of that is putting on Christ, putting on the new self. That's putting on the armor. That's wrestling. That's the wrestling match. We rule with Jesus. We exercise his kingly authority. We wrestle with these spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places by our life together in God's household, including our life together in our individual households, your marriage, your parenting, if you're married and parenting, that's all spiritual warfare. Putting on Christ, putting on the armor, wrestling against the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. So what does that mean? Well, it means very simply, as you get beyond just being a church attender, and start serving the body of Christ, that's wrestling. As you work, so you not just are making money so you can have a huge bank account, although that's a blessing, but also so you have something to give, so you can be generous, that's spiritual wrestling. As we as Christians, as Paul says in chapter 5, as we struggle together with wisdom questions, he says you're trying to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. And man, do we have some wisdom questions in our time. And as you wrestle with those together, you are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As you gather to sing in church and in private gatherings, singing in the Holy Spirit together, that's spiritual warfare. Young people, as you prepare to marry and have children, I hope you are preparing because it takes preparation. Preparing to be this kind of wife, husband, father, mother, that is preparing for spiritual warfare. As you are faithful through the ecstasies and the agonies of marriage. That's spiritual warfare. Wives, as you respect your husbands. Husbands, as you love your wives. Parents, as you teach your children to obey in the Lord. Children, as you obey in the Lord. As you shepherd the heart of your teen. Yes, even in the digital age. Learn how to do that. As we show our children, just for example, that a healthy body is something to seek and a sexualized body is not something to seek. As all of us in the church care for these young ones among us as if they were our own, Paul says that is how God is building this worldwide thousand-generation temple that shows the rulers and authorities Jesus is Lord. Are you with me? That's how God shows the principalities and powers Jesus is Lord. He does rule. He does reign. Look at these households. Look at these communities of believers. Look at these serious people who understand God's design for life restored in Christ and they are after it in Jesus. That is spiritual warfare. That is how God shows the principalities and powers. His Son is Lord. So let me wrap up with two practical points of focus before we we unpack more in the next couple of weeks. First of all, to all of us, let's to all of us, regardless of your life situation, all of us, let's reject the rejection of God's design for gender. Let's just reject the rejection in our time of God's design for gender, the rejection of male bodies, the rejection of female bodies, 
the rejection of manhood and womanhood expressed socially. Let's just reject the rejection. And Christians get a lot of crazy mileage, some of them, out of this text in Galatians 3 where Paul says there is no male or female in Christ. Can I tell you what that is saying and what it is not saying? When Paul says there is no male or female in Christ, this is exactly what he means and no more. He means, it is blindingly obvious in that context, that what he means is that you are absolutely no more or less God's child because you're a Jew or a Greek, a slave or a free person, a male or a female. You are no more or less God's child no matter what earthly category you fall into. You are a child of God, full stop, 100%. None of that affects your standing with God. But beloved, the new self in Christ is always put on by a man or a woman. Do you understand that? The new self in Christ is always put on either by a man or by a woman. The new self does not undo creation. It redeems what God has made. It sanctifies what God has made. It makes you more of the man God wants you to be, more of the woman God wants you to be. God made you a man. He made you a woman. So glorify God in your body. Yes? That he gave you as a man or a woman. And take your cues here, not from cultural stereotypes, either of the 1950s variety, God save us, or the 2022 or 2023 variety, but rather take your cues from men and women who are devoted to Christ. Study them. Be like them, men. Let's find ways, as we are doing this year, to strengthen each other as men. And women, I know you're already doing this, but let's find ways this year to strengthen each other as women. When there are men's gatherings or women's gatherings, guys, be a part of those men's gatherings. Ladies, show up for the ladies' gatherings. Not because we need more programs, because we need growth in the new self. And this is how Jesus is at work and the Father is at work to show the spiritual powers Jesus is Lord. And how can we not just in our own generation, but how can we as men turn the hearts of the next generation of men to the faith, hope, and love of their fathers. And women turn the hearts of this next generation of women to the faith, hope, and love of their mothers as they are practicing manhood and womanhood in an extremely confused age. Let's make that a focus and be completely unembarrassed about it because it's what God is saying to the rulers and authorities that matters, not what the people in the culture say about us. Second thing I'll say is a bit more specific now to you who are married and you who are parenting. The purpose of Christian marriage is kingdom fruitfulness. It is not just romantic bliss. Romantic bliss is a, is a blessing, but that is not the main purpose of marriage. For you two to just make each other endlessly, sublimely happy all the days of your life, first of all, that is a fool's errand, and second of all, that is not going to be satisfying. A fruitful marriage is a happy marriage. Your marriage was given to you so that you might together be fruitful for the kingdom of God. And the purpose of Christian parenting is the same. It is kingdom fruitfulness. It is not just to raise kids to be successful self-gratifiers. I often hear parents say, "What well, I'm trying to raise my kids to be successful, and what I hear, cynical pastor that I sometimes am, what I hear is parents saying, I want my kids to be able to afford a self-gratifying lifestyle. That is not the goal of parenting for a Christian. I mean, I hope your kids can afford to live, amen, and have more than they need to give, amen. But the goal of Christian parenting is that I'm raising spiritually fruitful Christians. 
who serve Jesus in this world, the household is to be a school and a building block of this Christian community, this Christian service in the world that is the temple of God. And so what can we do together this year to strengthen fruitful households? Not just those of us who are in these households, but together strengthening fruitful households. And we just have a tremendous kingdom opportunity in that in our particular time in history because we are in this age of revolution. But more about that next week and the week beyond. I hope you guys will be encouraged. God is doing great things and you're a part of it. And there's a whole lot going on in the heavenly places that maybe we never thought about before. I hope you will now. So, Father, bless these things to our hearts and minds. Make us fruitful in these good works. Help us to see how the life of Ephesus is so much a part of that life that is going on in the heavenly places and here on Long Island, too. In Jesus' good name, amen.